Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Father, we thank you today for your word. And first we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. We want to learn and we know that learning comes from you. You're the one that gives revelation. You open up the scriptures to us just like Jesus did to those that were walking the road to Emmaus. As you opened up their mind, I pray today you'd open up our minds to see and, and hear and heed the scriptures. I pray that what's of you would stay and stick and encourage and convict us and what's of me just would fall to the ground. And Lord, now we also join with many other believers and churches all over this region as we pray for our church and, and for your people that you would keep us in divine health. We also pray for all of those that are serving in our hospitals, our frontline workers, those that are police officers, uh, those that are, are, are working in the hospitals and those that drive ambulances and those that are chaplains. And we pray for all of those that are serving people during this very difficult time, both in uh, health and, and physically speaking, but also in, in, in the emotional arena and the relational arena. There's so much tension. And we just pray, God, that you would pour out your strength and you'd pour out your peace. But Lord, we know that comes through us yielding to your gospel. And so we do pray that you would make us bold in the things, uh, bold in the gospel, uh, but you'd make us continually loving towards people and help define what that means in this season. Help us, Lord. Give us handles to that. We pray for all of our government leaders. Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom. And that ultimately, Lord, that, that your glory fills the whole earth. And yes, there are many of us in positions of power. But you have ultimate power. Some have positions of authority, but you have ultimate authority. And we acknowledge you and your authority today. And we ask, Lord, that you would inform men and women in places of power and authority. We don't lose hope in that. We understand that, Lord, this world is going to go exactly where you say it will go. And we ask for eyes of faith as the church. And so where we have opinions and, and, and biased perspectives, and maybe we're wrong in some of those things, but, Lord, we ultimately just pray your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Start with our hearts and our homes, Lord. Make us accountable for that so that we serve you with open hearts and open hands. And we make your gospel known. We thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. If you're not aware, I've said this already, I'm going to say it again. We are slowly going through the book of Mark. And this is our fourth message. And we're still only halfway through Mark chapter 1. And so you can buckle your seatbelts. We'll be here for a long time, it would seem. Last week, I talked about the kingdom of heaven, and today we're going to talk a bit about discipleship through these five verses. Jesus gives an invitation of discipleship to these four fishermen. It's a very profound story, and although all of it does not apply to us contextually, there are many principles that absolutely do, and we want to glean those from this passage. And here's what the Bible says in verse 16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, this is Jesus, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little farther, 
he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The first half of the book of Mark, many of us know this, but it centers around right here, the Sea of Galilee, which makes it a very significant place. The Sea of Galilee is known by other names in scripture and the New Testament has two other names. In the Old Testament, it has one other name, but you'll hear the Sea of Tiberias or Lake Gennesaret. Uh, It's really more than a sea. It's a freshwater lake. It's about 13 miles long. It's about seven to eight miles across. And this still is a place that you can go to today. I have been there. Some of you, have you been there before? Raise your hand if you've been there. You've been to the Sea of Tiberias. And we are going there in 2023. If you would like to attend, you can come with us to Israel and we will actually be on the Sea of Galilee. If you go to Google right now, you'll find that the Sea of Galilee has has a a rating of 4.5 stars and 2,200 reviews. So it's actually a very popular place that you can still go to. And I would tell you that when you get to go to Israel, probably one of the most significant trips that my wife and I have ever been on, I think we celebrated our 10th year anniversary by doing a study trip to Israel. It was exhausting. We were, (laughs) they gave us a book that was this thick up front and they told us it was about three months worth of teaching that was going to be crammed into about 13 days. Uh, Our trip will be a little bit more restful than the one we went on. Somehow we chose uh, just pack it all in and see what you can remember kind of trip. But it's a really powerful experience where you walk in the places that Jesus was and that scripture highlights. And, And yes, sometimes the guide is saying, this is where Peter lived, you know, generally speaking. And this is where Jesus was crucified, generally. And this is where the tomb was, we think. Uh, So what's amazing though is although it might not be exactly right there, it is very close. And it's so powerful and there's something special about about being there. But I want to encourage you to come if if you can. But we see that the Sea of Galilee is a very significant uh, place and a very significant area where Jesus's ministry sort of uh, centers around for part of the book of Mark. Verse 16, we read that Jesus walks by the sea and he sees Simon And then he sees James and John. It says that he sees them. I love this. If you're not aware, this is not the first time that Jesus encountered at least Andrew and Simon. If you read John chapter one and verse 35 to about 42 or so, you find that Simon and, which is Peter, and Andrew already had a previous encounter with Jesus. And that does bleed into the story. So it wasn't sort of random. It wasn't like Jesus was just walking along and sort of noticed these two and had no previous experience with them. He actually, he actually really did. And there were many fishermen out that day. In fact, historians tell us that there were about 300 boats that were typically on the Sea of Galilee any given day. And so when you think about that, it wasn't, it, I mean, there's a lot of people that are there as Jesus walks along the sea. The fishing industry is booming at that time. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But when you read in Luke chapter five, you find a little bit more detail where Jesus actually gets into one of the boats and tells Simon Peter to throw his 
his net on the other side and they've been fishing all night. He says, I'm not, I, 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 why would I do that? This is not even the time to fish, but because you said it, I will do it. And it says that he catches an incredible, miraculous amount of fish. And Peter sort of humbles himself to the Lord, realizing that he's not just a man alone, but something special is about him. And we know, of course, that he's Jesus the Christ, Christ not being his last name, it being his title. He is the Messiah. And so those stories, John 1 and Luke 5, they bleed into um, all of this. But what we're really looking at today is we're looking at this, what I'm calling the invitation of discipleship that Jesus issues. But before we look at that in detail, let's just define discipleship because I think we need to all know what I'm talking about to make sure that definition is very, very clear. The word disciple or discipleship is not used in this passage, but the disciples of Jesus, these four and then another eight, which make up the 12 original disciples, that word disciple is used to reference them for really the rest of the book of Mark until they are called as apostles, which is a major shift, not only in their title, but in their ministry to prepare them for when Jesus ascends to be with the Father. But in their world, this word discipleship or disciple was not only a well-understood concept, but it was extremely visual. The word disciple means a student or a learner, and it's not just talking about classroom learning. That's sort of the way that we think about it in our Western minds. But they had many different disciples and disciplers. For example, they had the Greeks, and the Greeks were disciples of philosophy. They loved to just sit around and debate different philosophical perspectives all day. Paul dealt with that quite a bit when he spoke to the Corinthians. That's why he would tell them that the kingdom of God is not just a matter of eating or drinking, and it's not just a matter of talk, but it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He was saying, that to the philosophical mind, the people that just wanted to talk and they didn't realize that what he was representing is actually real. It's not just words that are hollow, but it's power that comes from the kingdom of God. And that's why he would say those things because there were the Greeks who were disciples of philosophy. And there was also the Pharisees and they were disciples of procedures is the way I'm putting it, but really interpretations of the law. So yes, they did worship Yahweh. And yes, they did know the Torah, uh, the law. But the problem was, is that they had also developed their own version of the law, many interpretations of the law. So when I say they were disciples of procedures, what I'm saying is there were 630 other interpretations of the law. For example, whenever you look and see there's a tension on the Sabbath day and what Jesus did on the Sabbath day and the Pharisees or the religious leaders had a tension and they were sort of like, can he do that? And they automatically wanted to bring harm to Jesus or dismantle his ministry. The reason that they felt that way was not because they were just jealous or zealous for what the Old Testament taught about the Sabbath. They had developed 39 additional rules based on the passages of what the Sabbath is. So if you can imagine when somebody develops a box that has 39 different walls, if anybody even moves, like a couple of you just moved a second ago, we're not sure if that's okay on the Sabbath, you know, because you have a box with 39 different rules and nobody's sure exactly if we are able to do this or that or if it falls under these guidelines. And this is, uh, this is where they were. They were disciples of procedures, not just the Torah, not just the law, and not just, um, they weren't just zealous for 
uh, the worship of Yahweh. They had gone beyond that. That's what Jesus confronted. There were also zealots, and the zealots were disciples of protest, namely violent protest. They wanted to overthrow Roman oppression, and they were willing to do that even with violence in mind. And then there were, of course, who we're focusing on today, the followers of Christ, who were disciples of the words and the ways of Jesus. A disciple was a learner, an apprentice, a one who would walk in the footsteps of another. When a rabbi had students, this was considered discipleship, and it was a high honor to be a student. I want you to picture that in your mind. If you and I were a student of Rabbi Jesus, which we are, then it's a high honor for us to consider our position and our place, to have that place with him, to be following the footsteps of our rabbi, as it were, naturally speaking, anyways, that's a high honor. It was not an obligation. It was honestly an honor, and we have to see it that way. The, the other thing that's very important when you think of discipleship sort of as a concept in contrast to their culture is that disciplers, they did not seek out their students. That was abnormal. Jesus pursued, Jesus called, Jesus invited these four fishermen, and he did so with the other ones as well. This is a very powerful thought. If you think about it, Jesus honored them by inviting them. Nobody else did that. That wasn't normal. A a rabbi did not invite their students to follow him. It was something that they sought after. You had to be a certain pedigree. You had to grow up and you had to show a certain proficiency in your ability to understand and communicate the law. All of these other fishermen, they only learned the law as as Jewish boys and girls, well, boys mainly, but they only learned the law to a certain degree. And obviously, if their family was either part of the trades or they didn't show a certain proficiency in their ability to understand and communicate, they all went to the trades. And it was only these that were left over, those ones that were really the, 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 higher, the higher learners, those were the ones that sought after and had something to contribute and prove that they could, in fact, follow the, their rabbi. And so we have to think of it this way. This is why we're bringing this up, that Jesus invites us into discipleship, to follow his words, to follow his ways. But when we look at this passage, it's, it's, it's very interesting. There are two things that we can find. I mean, there's not a lot here, but I want to pull two very significant things that apply to what we're calling the invitation of discipleship. And the first one is this. The invitation to discipleship is an invitation to follow. Jesus says in Mark 1:17, come and follow me. And we may not realize that follow me, this term, this phrase, carries massive implications. Jesus, it's only recorded that he gave this uh, invitation five times. Now, he gave it more than that, but it's recorded in the Bible five times. The first is this one we just read. The second one is right after it with James and John, Mark 1, 19 and 20. The other one is Matthew. You see in Matthew 9, 9, where Matthew, who was a tax collector, was invited to be a disciple of Jesus, where he said to him, follow me, and he did. 
We also read in Matthew 19, 16, where Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler. That's what the Bible calls him, the rich young ruler. And then there's an unnamed person in Luke 9, 57 that's engaging Jesus on a dialogue about um, him wanting to go home and bury his father. He's saying, I want to follow you, but first I need to go bury my father. And probably his father wasn't dead and he was the firstborn. That's potentially what that would mean there. And so he wanted to wait till his father was dead so he could bury him. And as the firstborn, he would also receive the inheritance. That might've been a byproduct of some of his motivation there. But either way, it could have been honor and it could have been inheritance. But Jesus says to that man, let the dead bury the dead, but you come and follow me. In other words, I want you just to follow me. Your traditions and the way you're thinking, this actually supersedes that. Very important. And so not everybody responded to this invitation, follow me the same way. And that's something we have to note. Uh, Jesus meant some things by it. They knew that. We need to understand that as, as well. But we know that these passages do help us uh, quite a bit. But what does it mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? Two things that he meant. The first, to follow Jesus means that you must leave things behind. And there isn't one instance where the invitation of discipleship didn't start with leaving something first. And I want you to think about that real quick because it might be real exciting. Like Jesus invites me to follow him. But the implication first is that in order to follow, you have to leave something behind. And that's exactly what these four fishermen had to do. It says right here, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And then it also says for James and John that they left their father and their hired servants. So there's three things that these four fishermen had to leave right away based on the invitation, follow me. It wasn't just like, follow me, and you could have everything that your life was. You had to leave this so that you could have this. But they obviously saw this as better than that. And that's part of what we need to see as well. The first thing that they left was they left their businesses. These were four fishermen. And, and can, I, can I tell you today, uh, I, I love the Chosen TV series. Everybody? Yeah, okay. So if you haven't watched it, please do. Uh, but they don't get everything right. Okay, I hate, to break, I hate to break the news. But they don't get everything right. And they're not trying to. They're trying to get as accurate as they can. But one of the things they don't get right is they portray the fishermen as ex- so extremely poor that they don't know what's going to happen with food. Uh, that's not really that fair. And the way that I read this, yes, it was a very difficult, oppressive time. The taxation was extremely heavy, uh, but that's not really accurate. And please dig into this for yourself. Some of you, you know, you bring up a a person's favorite television show and they get quite offended. (laughs) It's not the Bible, guys. Okay. It's a theatrical version. All right. (laughs) It's not a new version of the Bible. (laughs) But look what it says here. When they left their businesses... It says in, uh, in verse 19, the little detail that Mark says, they left their hired servants. Okay? You do not have hired servants unless you can afford to pay them. <laughs> I've had businesses. Some of you have businesses. Others are part of businesses. I've been the owner-operator of my business every time I've owned a business because I couldn't afford to pay someone and it didn't financially make sense. The only reason you would have a hired servant is if your business had grown to a place where it made sense to hire more people and you could afford to do so because you were bringing in enough to pay them and either make more money or you get more time out of the deal. 
The only reason I would hire somebody for my business, which I no longer have, is because I'd get either more time or more money, but either way, you can afford to pay them. Now, these guys are in the middle class. I'm not saying they're high class because they're not, but they're in the middle class. They have enough money to make it and they have hired servants. And the reason I'm bringing this up is they had to leave their businesses, which means they had built their businesses to a place where they had nets and boats and hired servants. All of this cost a lot of money. This was their livelihood. This could have been their inheritance. This was everything to them. And sometimes in Christianity, we tell people, well, you know, they're not going to come to Jesus until they hit rock bottom. You know, they got to lose everything. They got to lose their spouse and their mouse and their finances and their, they got to lose it all. They got to sing the country song right alongside all that they've lost, you know, and then they'll come to Jesus. That doesn't look like the scenario you're reading about right here. It looks like Jesus looked at four fishermen in the middle of their business. They had hired servants. They had all this stuff. And he didn't care if they were at rock bottom or the height of the mountain. He said, follow me. It seems like Jesus doesn't have the same principle sometimes that we do. Now, I do believe that sometimes people have to get to a place where they're very low and our pride has to be humbled so that we can look up. I think that's true, but it doesn't mean that's where Jesus is actually calling us. He doesn't wait until we hit the lowest of lows to call us. He'll call us right in the middle of the highest of highs. He doesn't have a problem with that, but they had to leave their businesses behind. The other thing they had to leave was they had to leave their stability. This wasn't an easy time. Uh, in the, I mean, the Roman oppression, as I've mentioned, the taxation, all that was going on. So they had something going for them. They had stability. They had routine. Um, they probably had worked themselves into a place where they could provide for others. And, and they had not only built stability in their own lives, but it was around them as well. They, they became sort of a rock. And as, a, as business people, I'm sure that they could also help others uh, to build that trade and maybe their children were eventually going to be in that trade as well. And there's a lot of stability when you've got stuff. There's a lot of stability when you have routine and you get to figure out all your day. Amen. Any scheduled people in the room today? When, when you've got your schedule and all of a sudden somebody's saying, follow me. Uh, and that means that you've got to leave behind the stability that you're accustomed to. You're used to that. I, I like to know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I like to know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. Is anybody with me on that? I like to know where I'm going to be. I like to know if there's going to be a Vitamix there or a Starbucks nearby. I, li- I like to know, but you got to, you know, that, I know first world problems. I, I'm, but they knew fishing, they knew family, they knew daily living, but they didn't know life on the road. Jesus is this itinerant preacher, this unpredictable personality. Where's he going to go? What's he going to do? How are we going to live? What's that going to look like? All those questions, you got to leave that behind. When Jesus invites us into discipleship, you know, those things, those things also are the same for us. Now, I do want to make a real quick distinction. These are, the, these are four of the 12 original disciples. He's not asking us to leave our businesses and go on the road to be itinerant preachers. That, that was for them. Uh, and many of us, actually, he's not necessarily asking us to leave our business, our employment. He's actually asking us to go into our business and into our employment so that we can be used as a minister of God. That's what he's asking us. He's asking us to sacrifice. In our day, he's asking us to sacrifice maybe the successful ladder climbing that we want so that we can be known as somebody that not only represents Jesus, but loves on people the way that Jesus calls us to in our work environments. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us necessarily out of the workforce and the business world to just see how we make it on the street corners of preaching. Most of us, 
We're not going to make it on that, okay? We're just not. But we need to go into our work world and we need to be ministers of Christ. That would be for us today. They left their stability. They also left their family. James and John left their father. All the disciples left family. And they also left the concept of family. They left their traditions. How many of you like your traditions, right? Sometimes the Lord will ask you to give that stuff up. Why? Why would he do that? He would ask it because of what, what he wants to replace it with. He, he wants you to be a minister of the gospel. He wants you to serve people. And sometimes our traditions or our way of thought or our cultural understanding, wherever we come from or, or, or however we think, he'll ask us to put that on the altar so that we can be the servants in his hands that are as useful as he wants us to be. He's not trying to mess with us. He's trying to use us. You can't pray, Lord, use my life and say, except don't touch any of these things. See, that's the point. He's inviting us into discipleship. It's not an obligation. It's an invitation. It's not an I have to. It's an I get to. And the more that we see that, the more we'll put it all in the altar and let him decide what he wants to take and use for his glorious purposes. I have this thought, though, as they left their family and all of this comfort and stability and business and all these things that they had to leave, I have this thought, and maybe we haven't thought about this before, but he's preparing them for the suffering that's inevitable. He's preparing them for everything that's going to happen to them. And, and, And let me just tell you, it's a lot easier to embrace suffering and difficulty if you've been holding nothing back. When we hold things back and we live in hesitation and we're reserved and we're like, well, you know, and we're constantly negotiating with God... Instead of just saying, Lord, everything I have is yours, everything that, anything you want, not because I want to have some sort of pious perspective, but rather he knows what needs to go and he knows what needs to stay and he knows what my life is like tomorrow. It's really an issue of trust. It's not a matter of test. It's an issue of trust. He wants to use my future and I've got to lay my future out in everything that that means. Everything that 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 means. But I think he was preparing them for the suffering that was coming. What if the Lord is asking us as disciples to lay things down, not because he's messing with us. He doesn't want to mess with you. He wants to bless you. But we can't see what blessing is because we're so accustomed to what we have and to what we know that we're not willing to give those things up to receive what blessing actually is. Now let me strike while the iron's hot. Sometimes, let's just say American traditions, the way we do Thanksgiving, the way we do Christmas. You know, the Lord spoke to my heart and asked our family, and my wife and I have worked this out through aggressive negotiations. You know, I'm not trying to put her on the spot, but I didn't grow up with certain traditions. So some things were easier for me to leave, but she did. And so I was like, hon, I really feel like the Lord is asking us to give up some of these American traditions or the way we do things in order to serve people that don't have families. Right? So we want to be more impactful, but sometimes the most impact that we bring happen to be in those areas that we guard. And so over a period of years, her and I prayed about this, and we finally came to the place where like, we're going to give up our Thanksgiving and some of our Christmas, and we just want to invite people in. And so actually at our church, I'm not doing a sign-up right now, but we're going to do Thanksgiving in, uh, in the church uh, and, and on Thanksgiving Day, not another day. We're going to do it on Thanksgiving. And my family's going to be there, and, and whoever else wants to be there, and we're going to invite people, and we're going to serve, and we're going to do it here, and we'll probably do dumb talent show things, or I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, it, it, but, we, uh, but I... If, if you don't have family, 
We're, we're your family. You know, I believe that's what the church is. The church is to fill in where, where some of us lack. You understand? Some of us uh, don't, aren't married. Some of us don't have children. Some of us don't have family around. Some of us are, are widows or widowers. Or some of us just want to be a part of, of, of church because you're closer to your church family than you are to your natural family. And you'd like to serve. Well, we want to provide that for, for, for you. And we're, there's no obligation. Some of you, you need to keep your traditions. Like it, you're ministering to your family. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is a long time coming. But God will mess. He'll mess with that because of what's on the other end of it. See, if we're disciples of Jesus, it's like I'm following your words and your ways. And what do you want me to give up? And whenever he asks you to give something up, it's because of what he wants to add to you on the other side. Not just for you, but also through you. That's discipleship. Lord, what do you want? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And that's why lordship, that that conversation about the kingdom of God and Jesus being Lord, not just Savior. Him being Lord means that he gets to choose. And our life is this daily surrender of constantly giving over to the one that knows better, that sees everything, that knows what my life is supposed to be about, and the impact that's attached to that that brings the name of Jesus glory. Amen. And so this is the invitation of discipleship. It starts with leaving something and not just learning something. It usually starts with subtraction before it brings on addition, But when we consider the stories like the rich young ruler who was asked to sell all that he had and follow, I wonder if his sadness was connected to not just his leaving process, but his lack of understanding of what that was going to be like once he did. See, that's the deal. I I remember trying to convince my high schoolers, my my older boys, now they're uh, young, they're adults, whatever. All right. (laughs) They pay their taxes. Um, But... I remember in high school, when they were in high school, I was trying to convince them that when you, when you give, you actually get. And that's not the motivation, but I was trying to convince, I, I spent their whole high school years trying to convince them of that. And the whole world, the culture around them and friends and pressure and all that was telling them the exact opposite. You do what I say that you do. And the way that I say it, you know, because misery loves company and nobody wants to feel convicted if somebody stands out from the crowd. Because when you do that, all of a sudden, We judge that person, but that's the person you respect in five years from now. Did you know that, by the way? That when you step out from the crowd and what everybody else is saying, if you're following Jesus rightly and righteously, yeah, you're going to take it up front, but five years from now, you'll be the most respected person because you did it. That's the courage. You need the courage in the first season. The second season, you're going to need the grace to minister is what you're going to need. But but I think that when we look at the different responses to the invitation of discipleship, it's very clear that people didn't understand what they were getting in return for what they were giving. But it always starts with leaving something. The second thing, to follow Jesus means that you must learn his ways. The disciples left more than these things. They left many things, traditions, routines, patterns. But when you leave stuff, your capacity is available to learn stuff. This is very important. The disciples understood that following Jesus meant that they would go where he would go and do what he would do. Look what he says here in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. It says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who has been fully trained will be like his teacher. This is Jesus speaking. I want you to consider that concept for your own life. When Jesus looks at us, he wants us to be fully trained, 
fully trained disciples. No one is above their teacher, but everyone when fully trained will be like their teacher. Jesus wants us to rise and become like him. This is his desire. So when he looks at our life, he's not looking at us with less in mind than us becoming like him in the world that we live in. This is his desire. Is your vision the same? Is your vision for your Christianity to be like Jesus and to rise to that place? Because if it is, then what you see in him is what you're called to go after as well. And that's not just the miracle signs wonders, which good charismatics are always after. That also means foot washing. Amen. That means serving the poor. That means love being your ethic. That means sacrificial giving. That means all of that. We can't just the miracle signs wonders stuff. That's our flavor. But I think it means all of it. Jesus wants us to go after all of it. To serve people, to love people, to give our life away unashamedly, unreservedly. God, everything I am is yours. But here's the important piece. To be fully trained means that we have to constantly be learning and have a vision for growing all the time. We have to have a vision for growth. We should never feel bad that we're not fully there yet. We should never feel bad that we're not where he wants us to be yet. We should never look down on where we are unless we're unwilling to grow from where we are. Never. That's his vision for our life. He wants us to grow. And sometimes when you get a correction or you feel deficient, friend, we just get to look up and that's an invitation in our discipleship. And Jesus looks at us and he's like, I'm just, hey, be open. I want to lead you. We need to stop feeling bad when we realize a deficiency in our life and start feeling excited because that is the very place that our rabbi is leading us and instructing us. That's where he's working right there. If I had asked you today, I'd say, where is the area in your life that you feel deficient in or you feel like you haven't overcome or you feel like you don't know much about? That's where Jesus the Christ is inviting you and I into discipleship. He's wanting us to learn his ways. But there's, some, there's a problem that we have with our Western mind. We tend to think of learning as classroom learning. We tend to think of learning as sort of listening and observing another person. And, and that's all. When I was um, growing up, I, my dad was, uh, he would work on houses. He was a real estate agent starting in the 80s. That's why I became one later on for 15 years. But I remember growing up, I, my dad would, him and his business partner would buy a house. I remember one time, this is therapeutic, thank you. Uh, he, would buy, he would buy a house in Everett, historic Everett area. And one time he bought this house and it didn't have a crawl space because it was f- plugged with dirt. So they cut a huge eight by eight section. I think I've told you the story before, but they cut a huge hole in the kitchen. And uh, they gave us army shovels. I was like eight years old. And for the whole summer, we dug out a crawl space underneath a 900 square foot house with an army shovel. And that's all you could get in, you know? And I I felt like I was in the army. I'm pretty sure this is illegal right now. Dad, if you're listening, what did you do? But, and and, I, and I, I don't remember what we were paid, but I want to say it was a dollar an hour, but it was probably five, you know, it's sort of a Napoleon Dynamite thing there. But I, 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 we were definitely, you know, paid what we were worth, but it felt underpaid. And, and, and so we, but there was no, we didn't have no video games. Amen. I mean, we just bought a Nintendo in 1987, which is actually more money then than it is now. Uh, I'm having flashbacks. I'm sorry. Just, whoo. But so I grew up doing all kinds of work on homes. I think when I was 10 or 11 years old, my, my dad dropped me and my bro- brother off at a house in Shoreline, and then he went somewhere 
Uh, and then he gave us a five-gallon bucket of paint and two four-inch paintbrushes and showed us for about five, ten minutes how to paint. And then he came back at lunch. Yeah. Where did those days go? <laughs> we need to, <laughs> come on, somebody, we need to go back to those days. Some of you, you wonder why I am the way I am, and now you know. <laughs> Amen. And so, um, and so here's the thing. I grew up in this type of a home, and I'm super grateful for it, but the reality is, is that I never cared to learn any of those things. When I was 19 years old, I just wanted to get done with it. I just want, I'm, I was the employee, the, the, the minor, the employee that just, I wanted to get my work done. I didn't care how quality it was. I, I wasn't even trying to learn anything. I just wanted to like, okay, fine, I'll do this and I want to go. And, and no joke, it's the truth. And then at 19 years old, I bought a condo in Kirkland and it needed to be rehabbed. And I remember walking into that proposition, that idea of rehabbing a condo. And I thought, I don't know anything. I thought, where have I been this whole time? I'm part of a family that knows how to do this stuff. And I just like, I felt so horrible. And so then I'd be, you know, ring, ring, ring. Hey, dad. Hey, man. How you doing? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. You got some time? You do? Great. How about now? Yeah, now's good. He come over and then he ended up doing the whole thing with me. But I'll tell you what, as we remodeled that condo, what'd you do? What was that? What was that paint called? Sherwin-Williams is where you, okay, yeah, Sherwin-Williams. Sounds like a good guy. Sounds like a good guy. You know what I'm saying? Like we, all of a sudden, my learning, uh, my capacity to learn, my desire to learn was there because I realized I was going to need it. Come on, somebody, you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes Christianity, there's a problem with our Christianity because we learn things and it's not connected to what we're gonna do. And so have we really learned it? Have we really learned it? Because when you're a disciple following a rabbi, Jesus' vision is that every student would be fully trained, not fully knowledgeable, fully trained, that you would be able to pray for the sick, that you would be able to share the gospel. You don't have to be the evangelist. I mean, all of us have a part to play on the fishing boat of Christ. You know, we're all fishers of men and there's lots of different positions on the boat and we're doing this together. But part of the problem is this, is that we weren't learning to do. And it's like me growing up, I did it, but I only did it to get done with it and I wasn't interested to live in it. And that's not Christianity. Come on, it's just not. We do need to learn about it, but if we learn about it without seeking to do it, there's a missing component no matter how you cut it. And that's why a lot of this can be very boring and we reduce it down to sitting and smiling and the occasional raising of hands, but God wants us to be on the field of his kingdom advancing and that's what he is all about in our lives. He's all about it. Maybe you're not yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get you there. I told you two things. I've given you like 42, but here, here's the rest. It's the invitation to follow and it's the invitation to become. He goes on to say, I will make you become fishers of men. And that means to become like Jesus means that we have a new identity. The invitation of Jesus associates us entirely with the person of Jesus. This new identity that we have is entirely found in our relationship with, with him. This is why Jesus would say, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must first deny himself. 
He's not talking about our unique expression that we're all created in the image of God. He's saying self as is defined by the fall. Self is defined by the distortion of sin. We've got to deny that selfish part of us so that we can pick up our new identity in Christ. Who we are in him. If we don't let go of who we were, we will not become who he wants us to be. And that's what this is about. Our identity in Christ is where all of our behavior flows from. That's why behavior modification doesn't work. You can't just try to fix your life. He gave you a new life. You can't just fix your character. He gives you a new character. We have a born again nature. A sp- the spirit of God lives in us and we're living from that new nature. And we've got to get rid of our false identities. I, I thought it was interesting. I was thinking this morning about how many people are trying to steal your identity. I mean, financially aside, like, go ahead, steal my old identity. You know, Jesus isn't trying to steal it. He's trying to replace it. You understand? It's sort of a weird thought. I semi-apologize for, but... But we have to, we're learning who we are in Christ. But to be a disciple, we're learning from him. But we have to understand he's, he's replacing our identity. Remember when he talks to the rich young ruler, what does he say? He says, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Why would he say that? Because he doesn't like rich people or wealth? No, he said it because his identity was attached to what he had. And if he didn't sell what he had, he wouldn't be able to pick up his new identity in following Jesus. And so when the Lord looks into our heart, he will speak to the thing that is false in our lives and that is hindering us from becoming who we are in Christ. He wants to remove and replace the false identity with who we are in Jesus, sons and daughters of the living God. And we're learning that as as we walk with him. And when you come to Christ, it's not automatic that you just know how to be and how to walk and who you are automatically. It's part of the discipleship process. When my kids were younger, we're that family. We want to make Christmas all about Jesus. So everybody get a bigger present and then like coal or gum or whatever in their stocking, you know, we fill their stockings with the little stuff and then they get like a big present. And, and unfortunately, when they were younger, we were into like a lot of parents, you buy the thing that you, you never got and they, I want this thing. And like my daughter, she wanted this like dollhouse. I mean, and these things are like super bougie. I mean, like this is not a dollhouse. This is like the Taj Mahal. You're like, I don't even understand this. Like what? You're not even going to like it in a year, you know? I mean, I don't, so, uh, all right. Again, this, I'm sorry. But, the, but, but they, you, for, the, for the dad and some moms, you know you're going to spend, like, I don't know how long setting that thing up. And the box comes, and there's a sticker on it, and it says, assembly required. And that's sort of a nightmare. And, and then I remember, like, putting one together. One time I put this huge thing together, or a bike or whatever, and uh, I don't remember if it was my daughter or my wife. I don't, I don't remember who said it. Anyways, I just always felt like it wasn't, it never really quite turned out. Like the dollhouse looked like a doghouse. You know, it's like, I'm not sure if that's exactly how that's supposed to look, but, but, uh, but I think it's good enough. And so Christmas would come and, the, and, the, and there's a picture on, that comes with it. The, the, in the instruction manual, there's a picture. And it's like, <laughs> it's just, in my mind, I can picture my daughter. I want that to look like this. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> but my point is, is that our life in Christ 
even though he's given us everything that we need, just like that box is full of everything that it needs, our life still has some assembly required. And the manual, the instruction manual is the Bible. And when we as disciples today, when we want to become like Christ and we're engaged in the discipleship process, we've got to go back to the Bible because it tells us how to assemble all the parts so that we can end up becoming like Jesus. But that ultimately is part of discipleship. He said to them, come follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. I will make you to become. So we're changing, and part of that's a shift of, of identity. And let, let, me, let me close with this. To become like Jesus means that you have a new destiny as well. You have a new destiny. I love the story here because um, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, but there are jobs that, you know, you just, you feel like, what's the meaning of life? Like, where's the meaning in all this? And I don't think that these guys, I mean, these guys were making a living and they were providing for their family. And that's enough. Honestly, that's enough. And as followers of Christ, you know, that we find meaning no matter what we're doing. We find meaning in him and, and all that it's attached to. And God ultimately has that for us. But you have four fishermen under this Roman oppression, taxation, even coming from their own Jewish people. It's a crazy time. It's a crazy time that they're living in. We're, we're living in not, it's not similar, but it's, we're living, we live in crazy times uncertain times. And potentially it's worse in the future. Who knows, right? But Jesus shows up and speaks to four fishermen and he, he gives meaning to their life. He says to them, no longer are you just going to catch fish. You're going to catch men. I love this because this is what they're looking for. They're looking for meaning in their life. And Jesus gives meaning. And when I use the word destiny, that's what I'm talking about. God has so much more for us than, than just the mundane. And we may not realize that at times. We may not think that what we're doing has any attachment to sort of this destiny that God has for us. But in reality, for us on this side of the cross, it's not just what we're doing, it's how we're doing it. And it's who we're doing it for. For us, that's our discipleship. It's how we're living and who we're living for in the midst of whatever we do, whatever our, our fishing job is. But Jesus shows up and gives meaning to their life. And there's a collective call as disciples of Jesus for all of us to reach as many people that we can with the time that we have. That, that's my mission statement in life. I had to write it one time. I did this class and at the end of the class, you had to define your mission statement. And I wanted the most broad mission statement possible, right? I just, that's just personally what I thought was the best because everybody had like these specific things that they were going to give up in a year. <laughs> I was like, you won't be on that road in a year from now. Ask me how I know. But I was like, my mission statement is life is, in life is to reach the most amount of people that I possibly can with the time that I have in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. That, that is all that I'm about. And so that means I will literally use everything in my life, where I live, where I work, where I go, what I do, who I know, what I have. I will use everything in life to facilitate that goal is to reach as m the most amount of people that I possibly can with the time that I have. That's what Jesus says to them. I will make you become fishers of men. You're not just catching fish anymore. You will join me in the greatest thing that this world is, is ever seen. This is what I'm about. We, as the church of Jesus, that is what discipleship also facilitates for us. And whatever role that we play in that, that's what it has to stay and remain.
I, um, I'm sort of baffled by how many pitches there are in life for meaning. Are you, are you inundated by this in your life at all? There's a guy that calls me like every single day, like three times a day. His name is Scam Likely. And uh, <laughs> this guy, you know, this guy hasn't gotten a clue. Um, but a lot of times, you know, Scam Likely calls me and, and I don't listen to his voicemail, but I, re- I read it on my phone, on the iPhone. And, and it, half the time it's about a loan um, and I don't trust him. I'm not getting a loan from him. But the other half of the time, it's about some kind of meaningful thing, which presupposes I have no meaning in my life, and I'm looking for something that he can offer me, this random person that I've never met before that lives in New Jersey or whatever call center he's from. But it presupposes I don't have meaning in my life, and there's these pitches on the other end of Scam Likely's conversation, like, if you do this, then you will get this. If you give me this, then I will give you that. And when you get that, your life will be what it has never been before. That's, our whole world is inundated with this. Presupposing that we're living meaningless lives, always looking for meaning. Well, there's one truth in all of that. Until we meet Christ, our life doesn't have meaning. Because you, you, you are born, you grow, you work and you die. And if that's all it is, there's no meaning. That's why nihilism is an option to so many people today. That's why. Because it, if, if that's all that it is and we're randomly here, there's no intentional design and creation of God in all of this, then it is meaningless. But there, there is something about this though that Jesus wants to do. He wants to give us meaning to our life. He does give us meaning to our life. But us having meaning in our life is to be a part of what he's doing, not just to have some individual path that's separate from what Jesus is about. It has, it's a collective call to be a part of the greatest endeavor the, the world has ever known, to reach as many people as possible with the time that we have. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And it can't change. COVID can't change that. It might augment it a little bit, but it cannot change it. It can't change it. Some of us might go online for the season, don't, but, but stay connected. You understand? Like this, this is the greatest endeavor the world has ever known. This is the most meaning that we can possibly have. I will make you to become fishers of men. This is our purpose together collectively. And when we lose sight of that, we cease to become the local church. And that, that just won't happen here. Amen. It will not happen here. Would you stand? I, I, I have to close. Let's pray together. I, I want to encourage you. We'll have prayer teams available after the service. It, make the commitment to discipleship. Take the next step. Take the next step. In your own life, uh, in the church, take the next step. Let's look to get into something and not out of something. When you're looking to get out of something, it's not healthy. When you're looking to get into something, even if you can't always join it, y- your heart's in it. You know, let's, let's look to get more into what Jesus is doing. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for what you're doing. And we thank you for your word today. And I pray wherever we're at in the journey of discipleship, I, I pray that our hearts would be infused with the spirit of God and, and that joy and excitement to get on that path and to stay on that path today. And I pray, Lord, that our vision 
for growth would be expansive. I pray that you would expand our vision for growth, not looking back to what we've done and had, but looking forward to all that you are still going to do. And it is attached to our discipleship and you're inviting us today even more. Well, we received that invitation and we ask Lord that you would help us to calculate the cost and make the commitment. Whatever that is, I pray that you'd give us grace today to obey you because an obedient life is is the best and the blessed life. It's what we desire. Help us to know that, to believe that, and serve you in that. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said... Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.